Good evening, everybody. My name is Sean Bianco, and welcome to At the Opera, where every Saturday night I bring you an opera cover to cover, followed by opera potpourri. Well, tonight's feature opera was the first opera. First opera recognized as an opera in the operatic form, Claudio Monteverdi's La Orfeo. Um, a lot of distance between this opera and perhaps where we are now in the opera world, but this was the first. Now, in the very, very beginnings of opera, um, they started off as, in the church, liturgical plays, which then began to include music, intervals of music between dialogue. Then, when the subject matter of these plays started to stray outside the religious, outside the liturgical. Um, they had to be moved out of the church and into other performing venues. And uh, Orfeo, the mythical story of um, Orfeo and Eurydice, one of the oldest stories ever, became the subject matter for several early operas. And Monteverdi composed the one which is still to this day performed. So I hope you're really in for a treat for, I would say, medieval-slash-Renaissance opera, the very beginnings of the opera world. Uh, and then, not to do a bit of whiplash, but next week we're going to have Giuseppe Verdi's Simon Bocanegra. So big variance, big gap, huge distance between these two worlds. And I'll be talking um, during the break a little bit more about Claudio Monteverdi himself and some of the background of this opera. Um, I've done opera lectures for several educational institutions over the years. I still do. Um, and I actually spent, I had one lecture that I did where I spent in a, like two hours talking about this opera and playing excerpts from it. There is so much interesting backstory and development and how this opera came to be. Uh, and, uh, and this show is an opera show, not a lecture program. Uh, so I'm going to have to keep my comments restrained and brief, because <laughs> sometimes, as many of you know, I have a tendency of going off on tangents, so I will attempt to avoid that this evening. Uh, Thank you, by the way, for everyone who wrote in about La Forza last week. A lot of you love that old school recording, and several of you requested for me to dig out the old Cecera set of recordings that I did a while back. I did an all Verdi um, remastered Cecera, uh, what do you call it, a festival, I guess, <laughs> on my program. And so I'm, I'm going to acquiesce to that, and we're going to go back, and we're going to have uh, that now, next week, I could do the Simón Bocanegra that I have from that Cheturist set, but I have to tell you something. I don't like it. Um, a couple of the main singers, their voices kind of bug me, and, I, and I, it's actually distracting from the recording. And I don't want to distract you from the music, because the music, after all, is the most important thing. So next week, you we are going to have Verdi's Simón Bocanegra recording from uh, the 1970s, I believe, 1977 with an amazing cast. I'll talk about that later in the program. Okay, so Lor Orfeo, Le Orfeo, and I say Le Orfeo uh, because 
um, this version um, of the opera is, uh, well, A, it's beautiful, and um, I think you're really going to like it. Now, I've heard uh, French versions of this opera, and I've heard Italian versions of this opera, and uh, tonight is the Italian version. Um, and we're going to be having the Monteverdi Choir, John Elliott Gardner conducting. So, in the late Renaissance, early Baroque, this opera by Claudio Monteverdi, the libretto for this opera was written by Alessandro Strigo. It is based on the Greek legend of Orpheus and tells the story of his descent into Hades and his fruitless attempt to bring his dead bride, Eurydice, back to the living world. It was written in 1607 for a court performance during the annual Carnival of Mantua. Now, L'Orfeo is recognized usually as the very first opera, but to be fair to another composer, Jacopo Perry, who wrote an opera called Daphne, is generally recognized as the first work in the opera genre. And the earliest surviving opera is Perry's Eurydice, based upon the same story as tonight's opera. But because L'Orfeo is the earliest opera that is still regularly performed, it has sort of become acknowledged as being really the first opera uh, involving into a form of complete musical drama or opera, musical sequence between the acts of a straight play, which was common in the 17th century. Uh, Monteverdi's Le Orfeo moved this process out of its experimental era and provided a, the first fully developed example of this new genre, opera. After its initial performance, the work was staged again in Mantua and possibly in other Italian centers in the next few years. Its score was published by Monteverdi in 1609, published again in 1615. Unfortunately, after the composer's death in 1643, the opera went unperformed for many years and was largely forgotten until a revival of interest in, late, in the late 19th century laid, uh, led to a, a bunch of new modern editions and performances. So this opera kind of just disappeared into history for many, many years. And uh, I believe it was until after the Second World War that we first started seeing um, a few recordings of this opera. In its published score, Monteverdi lists around 41 instruments to be used, with distinct groups of instruments used to depict particular scenes and characters. So strings, harpsichords, recorders actually are used in this recording, representing the pastoral nymphs and shepherds. Uh, so it's a very interesting opera. I hope you find it interesting. If you're, if you're a big fan of, tr of traditional romantic Italian opera or even romantic German opera, you're going to be in for a huge surprise by this wonderful work by Claudio Monteverdi, who was born in 1567 and was a musical prodigy. I'll talk more about him later. Let's get into Act One. 
The action takes place in two contrasting locations, the fields of Thrace and the underworld. An instrumental toccata precedes the entrance of La Musica, this character representing the spirit of music, who sings a prologue of five stanzas of verse. After a gracious welcome to the audience, she announces that she can, through sweet sounds, calm every troubled heart. She sings a further uh, song to the power of music before introducing the drama's main protagonist, Orfeo, who held the wild beasts spellbound with his song. What's that saying? Music calms the heart of the savage beast or something like that. That's where that came from. In Act One, after La Musica's final request for silence from the audience, which I thoroughly enjoy, that part, <laughs> audiences in opera houses are notoriously noisy, the curtain rises on Act One to reveal a pastoral scene. Orfeo and Eurydice enter together with a chorus of nymphs and shepherds who act in the manner of a Greek chorus, commenting on the action both as a group and as individuals. A shepherd announces that this is the couple's wedding day. The chorus responds, first in a stately invocation, O come, and then in a joyful dance, leave the mountains, leave the fountains, they sing. Orfeo and Eurydice sing of their love for each other before leaving with most of the group for the wedding ceremony in the temple. Those left on stage sing a brief chorus, commenting on how Orfeo used to be one, quote, for whom sighs, of food, sighs were food and weeping was drink, before love brought him into a state of sublime happiness. Goodness, what an introduction to Orfeo and to this opening scene and his wife Eurydice. In this recording, we're going to hear it tonight, from 1987, Orfeo is sung by Anthony Rolf Johnson, Eurydice is sung by Julianne Baird, La Musica is sung by Lynn Dawson, Messageria is sung by Annie-Sophie von Otter, Ninfa is sung by Nancy Argenta, Speranza is sung by Mary Nichols, and Caronte is sung by John Tomlinson. The Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloists, and, <clears throat> I have to clear my throat for this one, His Majesty's Sackbutts and Coronets. We'll talk more about what a sackbutt is later. John Elliott Garner conducts this recording on Archive, a Polydor International recording from Hamburg, Germany, from 1987. Here's the introduction and Act One of tonight's feature opera, the first opera, Claudio Monteverdi's Le Orfeo. I hope you enjoy this new experience in opera if you've never heard it. Here we go. Enjoy.
Questo lieto e fortunato giorno, a posto figlia gli amorosi affanni del nostro sebiteo, cantiamo. 
And there we have Act One of tonight's feature opera, The Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi. We're hearing a recording from uh, 1987 on Polydor Archive. And I'm uh, stepping in here between Acts 1 and 2. Musically speaking, they tended to just sort of run over each act, but they are delineated in the synopsis by Acts, and I wanted to get you caught up on the synopsis before we just plow right into the next act. We're hearing a recording conducted by John Elliot Garner, the Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloists, His Majesty's Sackbutts and Coronets, Orfeo is being sung by Anthony Rolf Johnson and Eurydice by Julianne Baird. La Musica is sung by Lynn Dawson and Mageria. Messageria is sung by Annie Sophie von Otter. Not only is this a wonderful recording of the Orfeo, but the reason I often play or always play this one is it's my wife's favorite recording of this opera. So there you go. And you know what they say about, you know, keeping your wife happy. No, she loves she loves this recording. Ooh, she's gonna punch me. Uh, uh, no, this is a lovely recording, and um, I've been I've been playing it for years, and uh, it's it's her favorite as well. It's it's just gorgeous. It's so interesting how the texture of the voices and the instruments, um, just weave in and out, and how the voices are used almost as instruments, with that short staccato. Um, delineation of the pitches and the notes, very different use of the human voice uh, in Renaissance and Baroque opera, to be sure. Let's talk just a little bit about Claudio Giovanni Antonio Monteverdi. Born May 15, 1567, he died November 29, 1643. Uh, obviously Italian composer, chorus master, and string player. He composed both secular and sacred music, and he was a pioneer in the development of opera as an art form. He is considered a crucial transitional figure between the Renaissance and Baroque periods in music history. Born in Cremona, Italy, where he undertook his first musical studies and compositions, Monteverdi developed his career first at the court of Mantua and then until his death in the Republic of Venice where he was the Kapellmeister of the Basilica of San Marco. His surviving letters give insight into the life of a professional musician in Italy of this period, including problems of income, patronage, politics, which basically means nothing's changed. <laughs> Much of Monteverdi's output, including many stage works, have been lost, unfortunately. His surviving music includes nine books of madrigals, large-scale religious works, as well as the Vespers of the Virgin Mary, or the Blessed Virgin of 1610, uh, and three complete operas, including tonight's opera, L'Orfeo. Now, this is the earliest of the genres still widely performed. Toward the end of his life, he wrote works of For Venice, including the, the Coronation of Pompeia, which I've also played on this show, which I probably need to play next because I tend to favor Orfeo over that opera. While he worked uh, extensively in the tradition of earlier Renaissance polyphony, as evidenced in his madrigals, he took great developments, undertook great developments in form and melody and began to employ 
the basso continuo, uh, distinctive of of the Baroque era. Now let's let's for our non-music people out there, let's, let's define a few terms here. Polyphony is a type of musical texture consisting of two or more simultaneous lines of independent melody, as opposed to a musical texture with just one voice uh, or a texture with one dominant melodic uh, voice accompanying by chords at the same time. So having a texture of music that has two or more simultaneous lines of independent melody. This musical idea was groundbreaking at that time. And of course, again, composers like Jacopo Perry and Monteverdi laid the groundwork for everything that came after it, everything in the opera world and the musical world as well. Now, the basso continuo. Um, basso continuo parts, almost universal in the Baroque era, uh, provide the harmonic structure of the music by supporting a bass line and a chord progression. Uh, the phrase is often shortened to continuo, and the instrumentalists playing the continuo part are called the continuo group. So this can include laying down the bass line, a harpsichord, a stand-up bass, maybe even strings, laying down that low part of the music is the basis of the harmonic structure, the low end of the bass part. Um, Claudio Monteverdi, he was the first of several children, um, and has um, a long, long um, biography about where he got trained. He's a member of the Cathedral Choir, where he studied at Cremona University, and his first composed work of a set of motets were what he first composed for three voices, which was issued in Venice in 1582 when he was only 15 years old. So definitely a prodigy musician and um, got a lot of great training as a court musician. In the dedication of a second book of magicals, Monteverdi had described himself as a player of Viviola, which could mean either viola da gamba or viola uh, da braccio, which is two different instruments of that time. Um, he, uh, in 1590, he entered the service of uh, Duke Vincenzo of Mantua, Gonzaga. He recalled in his dedication to the Duke of his third book of madrigals, which was 1592, that the most noble exercise of the viviola opened to me the fortunate way into your service. In the same dedication, he compares his instrument playing to flowers and his composition as fruit, which as it matures, quote, can more worthily and more perfectly serve you, indicating his intentions to establish himself as a composer, as of course we now know he did. So an interesting character, figure in the musical world in the 1500s and 1600s, Claudio Monteverdi, composer of tonight's opera, Le Orfeo, often acknowledged as the first opera ever written that became famous. 
From Sacramento State, this is Capital Public Radio, 88.9 KXPR-FM in HD Sacramento, 91.7 KXSR Groveland, Sonora, 88.7 KXJS Sutter, and 90.9 KXJZ HD2 Sacramento. This hour of At the Opera, with yours truly, is made possible by Malcolm McHenry, who invites you to join him in supporting CAP Radio's commitment to opera on the air and in the community by making your contribution today. Thank you, Malcolm. Next week's feature opera, a 1977 recording on Deutsche Grammophon of Verdi's Simon Bocanegra, starring Piero Capocilli, Morella Freni, and Jose Carreras, and conducted by Claudio Abato. Hope you enjoyed uh, today's broadcast of Elixir of Love, a little fun in the opera world. Love Donizetti. Next week, Dialogue of the Carmelites, quite a bit more serious uh, affair next week on the Metropolitan Opera. And I will be host of those Met broadcasts, and I will be moving forward as well. So make sure and stay tuned next Saturday, 10 o'clock, for the Metropolitan Opera broadcast of Dialogue of the Carmelites by Poulenc. And then later that evening, 8 o'clock, on at the opera with Verdi's Simone Bocanegra. Let's return to the opera. In Act Two, Orfeo returns with the main chorus and sings with them of the beauties of nature. Orfeo then muses on his former unhappiness, but proclaims, quote, After grief, one is more content. After pain, one is happier. I'll have to think about that one for a while, but not now. The mood is, uh, contentment is, of contentment is abruptly ended when the messenger comes in, bringing the news that while gathering flowers, Eurydice, his wife, has received a fatal snake bite. The chorus expresses its anguish. Quote, ah, bitter happening, ah, impious and cruel fate, they sing, while the messenger castigates herself as the bearing of bad tidings. Forever I will flee, and in a lonely cavern lead a life in keeping with my sorrow. Wow. Just for delivering a bad message to somebody, you're going to go live in a cave and for the rest of your life and, and, and be sorrowful? Well, yeah. Dedication. Something to be said for that. Orfeo, after venting his grief sings, Thou art dead, my life, and I am, and am I breathing? He questions, declares his intention to descend into the underworld and persuade its ruler to allow Eurydice to return to life. Otherwise, he says, I shall remain with thee in the company of death. He departs, and the chorus resumes its lament. Orfeo was sung by Anthony Rolf Johnson, Eurydice, Julianne Baird. The Messenger is Anna-Sophie von Otter. Nympha is Nancy Argenta. Speranza is Mary Nichols. And Coronte, John Tomlinson. Our pastoral chorus. Got to give a little, um, little love here to the pastoral chorus. Mark Tucker, Nigel Robson, Michael Chance, and Simon Birchall. And the two spirits are Howard... Uh, Milner and Nicholas Robinson. The Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloist, His, Maj- His Majesty's Sackbutts and Coronets, conducted by John Elliot Gardner. After Act Two, after Act Two, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the instrument, the sackbut. So you'll have to wait until then. <laughs> Here we go. Let's go back to the opera. Monteverdi's Let Feo, Act Two. Enjoy. Thank you. 
sembrai, di ti allora non mi sembrai, più d'ogni altro sconsolato, or fortuna e stil cangiato, ed a volto in testa i guai, di ti allora non mi sembrai, più d'ogni altro sconsolato.
porti tigre ad orsa, innocentisse del tuo mal piedare, privo d'ogni tuo ben misero amante.
And that was Act Two of tonight's feature opera, Le Orfeo, by Claudio Monteverdi. No one's happy now, neither is the chorus, nor Eurydice, who has been attacked by a snake and is now in the underworld, the world of the dead. But Orfeo is determined to talk to those in charge down there and see if he can get his bride back. We shall see what happens to our brave husband in the next couple acts of tonight's feature opera, Monteverdi's Le Orfeo. The music to, in this period uh, of, uh, of opera, it sounds so almost, even when it's sad, pastoral in nature. But the plot lines to these operas were just as intense and just as convoluted and just as involved as any operas that came after it. Um, and sometimes even more um, fantastical because you had, you know, mythic characters and gods and goddesses and and underworlds and, you know, you had the Greek chorus and always commenting on things. It was very, very intense, you know, and um, this story of Orfeo and Eurydice, uh, one of the oldest love stories of all time, right next to the next great love pair or love story between Tristan and Isolde, often described as the greatest love story ever told. Perhaps this one is as well, of its time. John Elliot Gardner conducted this recording from 1987, excuse me, and in the title role of Orfeo, Anthony Rolf Johnson and his wife, Eurydice Juilliard Baird. So, and I mentioned... I've mentioned twice, we're hearing the Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloist, and His Majesty's Sackbutts and Coronets. Now, those of you who know the trumpet will be familiar with the coronet. The coronet is a slightly smaller version of uh, the trumpet. It has a different sound. Uh, doesn't have quite the range of a modern uh, orchestral trumpet. In fact, um, years ago when I was conducting a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan operas, the scores always called for cornets, not trumpets, because they have a, a little bit more mellow of a sound. Um, and it was always hard to find local uh, trumpet players who owned cornets. I did find a couple, and it made a huge difference. You know, that way whenever the trumpets came in, they didn't come screaming out of the brass section, you know, and making a very imbalanced sound. So cornet is a more subdued version of the trumpet. But what on earth is a sackbut? Well, it's nothing that dramatic. Actually, all a sackbut is is an early form of the trombone that was used during the Renaissance and Baroque era. The sackbut has a characteristic telescopic slide that trombones have um, used to vary the length of the tube to change the pitch. But it's distinct from later trombones by its smaller, more cylindrical proportioned bore or hole coming out the flared bell. And the bell in front is much less flared, uh, unlike the earlier slide trumpet, which uh, it involved. The sackbutt possesses a U-shaped slide with two parallel sliding tubes rather than just one. So, you know, all... all orchestral instruments started somewhere, and they all evolved over time as technology 
as manufacturing practices became more refined, as metallurgy practices became more refined. And, um, but the interesting trait about the sackbut, because of its smaller bore in the hole, the bell produced a covered, blended sound, which was a timber particularly effective for working with voices. Uh, and so, again, it was a more subdued, acoustically speaking, a more subdued um, version of the trombone. It blended better with the orchestra. It, was, it, it, it didn't drown out the singers. The revived instrument had changed in specific, specific ways. In the mid-18th century, the bell flare increased, and uh, the crooks in it, the turns in it, uh, fell out of use, and flat, removable stays were replaced by tubular braces, and the new shape produced a stronger, suitable-to-open-air performances, marching bands, uh, and the like, which became very popular in the early 19th century. Uh, before the early 19th century, most trombones adjusted tuning with a crook on the joint between the bell and the slide, more rarely between the mouthpiece and the slide. Rather than the modern tuning slide on the curved bell or bell curve, whose cylindrical sections prevent the instrument from flaring smoothly through the section. Older trombones are generally don't have what they call water keys, a lead pipe or a slide lock, but as these parts are not critical to sound, replicas uh, may include them. Even to this day, the bore size remains variable. Now, a water key is a valve um, or a tap used to drain the accumulated uh, moisture from a trombone. Uh, and having had to clean up the floor numerous times in orchestra pits that I worked in. The back row of the brass section is usually a small swamp <laughs> because they have to allow perspiration or moisture that accumulates in the tubes of the instruments. French horn, trumpet, cornet, trombone. You have to let that moisture out somewhere. So there's a, a stop valve on the bottom, a water key, as it's called. And this allows the instrumentalist to shake their horn, shake their trombone or the trumpet or French horn, and get that moisture out of the instrument. Because if they don't release that moisture, it'll begin to affect the sound. And it can create a lot of problems with the embouchure or where the lips meet the mouthpiece. So interesting little information for your day, your evening, about the sackbut. S-A-C-K-B-U-T an early form of the trombone used during the Renaissance and Baroque eras. My name is Sean Bianco, and this is At the Opera. Later on Opera Potpourri tonight, by request, some arias from Rossini's William Tell. One of my listeners uh, said, hey, you haven't played some William Tell for a while, so I'm going to have three arias queued up by three different voice types in that last opera of Giochino Rossini, William Tell or Guillermo Tell. From Sacramento State, this is Capital Public Radio, 88.9 KXPR-FM and HD Sacramento, 91.7 KXSR, Groveland, Sonora, 
88.7 KXJ Sutter and 90.9 KXJZ HD2 Sacramento. This hour of At the Opera with yours truly is made possible by John and Lois Crow, who invite you to join them in supporting CAP Radio's commitment to opera on the air and in the community by making your contribution today. This morning I was your host for the Metropolitan Opera for the Elixir of Love. I hope you enjoyed that delightful opera live from the Met. Next week, maybe not so delightful. In fact, just darn right depressing, but intense, bit of drama. Poulenc's Dialogue of the Carmelites. Um, I encourage you to maybe read about that opera before they broadcast it next week, because you may be, if you are faint of heart, um, either emotionally or um, spiritually, perhaps, I'll, I'll dangle that out there a little bit, um, you may want to... Uh, we want to consider whether you're going to listen to it. It's pretty intense. It's, it's an amazingly intense opera. So I encourage you to read about it. And the, and the Metropolitan Opera is going to broadcast it next week on, to, on Saturday at 10 o'clock. Um, next week's feature opera on my show, 8 o'clock, Verdi's Simón Bocanegra, recording from 1977, starring Piero Capuccilli, Morella Freni, and Jose Carreras. Okay. We should... Yes, we should. We should get going into the next act of tonight's feature opera, L'Orfeo. In Act 3, Orfeo is guided by speranza, which, by the way, is the Italian word for hope, to the gates of Hades. Having pointed out the words inscribed on the gate, which is, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Well, it's not very hopeful, is it? <laughs> well, that was a bad joke, too. Speranza leaves, Orfeo, leaves, and Orfeo is now confronted by the ferryman of a boat, Caronte. Now, Caronte, um, in Greek mythology, was the ferryman of Hades, the Greek underworld. He carries the souls of those who have been given funeral rites across the river Acheron and Styx, which separate the worlds of the living and the dead. And there were several, there's been many um, bits of, of archaeological pottery and drawings of, of, this, uh, of this ferryman to Hades. So, the ferryman is confronted, Orfeo is confronted by this ferryman, Caronte, who addresses Orfeo harshly and refuses to take him across the river Styx. Orfeo attempts to persuade Caronte by singing a flattering song to him, mighty spirit and powerful divinity. And although the ferryman is moved by the music, he says, Indeed, thou charmest me, appeasing my heart, he does not allow him to pass, claiming he is incapable of feeling pity. However, when Orfeo takes up his lyre and plays, ah, Caronte is soothed into sleep. Seizing this chance, Orfeo steals the ferryman's boat and crosses the river, entering the underworld, while the chorus of spirits reflects that nature cannot defend herself against man. Quote, 
he has tamed the sea with fragile wood and disdained the rage of the winds. Profound, I would say. Our brave Orfeo, trying to save his wife, puts the ferryman to sleep with his lyre and his music and attempts to pass into the underworld. Caronte, the ferryman, is sung by John Tomlinson, by the way, who was a wonderful Votan in his day, in the, uh, I think like the 80s, maybe 80s and early 90s. Orfeo is Anthony Rolf Johnson and a chorus of singers Howard Milner and Nicholas Robertson. The Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloist, His Majesty, Sackbutts and Coronets, John Elliott Gardner, 1987, on archive. His Majesty's Sackbutts and Coronets. Yes, the Monteverdi Choir and um, with the English Baroque soloist, this organization actually would, would borrow this group of musicians who regularly played for the majesty, for the queen or the king of England. They've been around a long time. And uh, if everything goes smoothly, it looks like England may have themselves an actual king by April. We'll see. We shall see. Lots of intrigue around the coronation of him. We'll see, see what happens. 1987 recording. Here is Act 3 of tonight's feature opera, Le Orfeo, by Claudio Monteverdi. Enjoy. Oh, 
raggio di sol giammai non giunse tu mi accompagna in luce in così strano e sconosciute vie redesti il passo Ancora spero di rivedere quelle beate luci che soli agli occhi miei portano il giorno. Per 
perché ti parti e m'abbandoni al lasso sul veriglioso passo qual peglior più l'avanza se fuggi tu
And there we have Act 3 of tonight's feature opera, The Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi. Hope you've been enjoying this interesting opera. If you've not accustomed to the sound of Renaissance opera, it's very, um, can be stark at times, but the transparency of the orchestration I thoroughly enjoy. You can hear every instrument. It's not a big, huge mishmash of 38, 40 violins and an orchestra of 110 and brass section the size of the, you know, the front line of the, of the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> I mean, whatever. I mean, orchestras have gotten huge. My goodness, they've gotten big. But hearing a nice, tight, um, small, you know, um, group of musicians providing precision and incision to the music of Monteverdi. And the singers, wonderful singers uh, in this recording, uh, I just love them. John Anthony Rolf Johnson as Orfeo, beautiful lyric tenor, um, not heavy, sings right on pitch. And I talked about this last week, about singers who sing on pitch, whose voices completely encapsulate the actual note on the page, not above it, not below it, not around it, but right on it. And I love the voices in this recording. Julianne Baird as Eurydice, Lynn Dawson as La Musica. Also, we heard Esperanza, Mary Nichols, and Coronte was John Thomason, our ferry driver of the, of the boat. In this recording, conducted by John Elliott Gardner, Gardner from 1987 on Polydor. Hope you're enjoying this recording. Considered the first opera by Monteverdi, Le Orfeo, the famous Orfeo and Eurydice mythological legend. So this morning we had, let's see, we had Elixir of Love. I thought it was great. Um, I thought Javier Camarena as Nemorino was wonderful. And um, the the bass who played uh, Dr. Ducomara was fan- Sylvester. He was fantastic. Just great. It was a good show. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Next week's opera at the Metropolitan Opera, a little bit heavier fare with Poulong's Dialogue of the Carmelites. And next Saturday at 8 o'clock on At the Opera with yours truly, as always, your obedient servant for opera, Sean Bianco, will be Simone Bocanegra, recording from 1977 with Simone, uh, with uh, Piero Capuccilli in the title role. Thank you to Marlene and thank you to Stephen who wrote me beautiful notes. I got them in the mail Thank you so much. You guys are so nice, and thank you for your contribution. Um, just, I love getting letters and cards from people. So thank you, thank you. Um, and um, you can always send me a letter or postcard or whatever you like. I get books here. I get CDs. I get movies. You'd be surprised what, rece- what arrives in my mailbox here at Cap Radio. Capital Public Radio, 7055 Folsom Boulevard, Sacramento, California, 95826. Care of yours truly, Sean Bianco. Alrighty, let's see, what are we doing? Well, we have uh, two short acts left of this opera. Let's, let's just get them going, um, and uh, let's get through here what we got here. We got Act 4. Act 4, In the Underworld, Prosperi... Ooh, almost said it wrong twice. Uh, Proserpina... Um, Proserpina is an ancient Roman goddess um, 
who, uh, whose functions and myths are virtually identical to those of the Greek Persephone, Prosperpina, replaced or was combined with the ancient Rome, Roman fertility goddess. So, Libra. So, the fertility goddess in a roundabout way. In the underworld, Prosperpina, queen of Hades, and here she's the queen of Hades, who has been deeply affected by Orfeo's singing as well, petitions uh, King Plutone, or Pluto, her husband, for Eurydice's release. Moved by her pleas, Plutone agrees on the condition that as he leads Eurydice towards the world, Orfeo must not look back. If he does, a single glance will condemn him, condemn him to eternal loss. Orfeo enters, leading Eurydice and singing confidently that on that day he will rest on his wife's bosom. But as he sings, a note of doubt creeps in. Who will assure me that she is following? Perhaps, he thinks, Plutone, driven by envy, has imposed the condition through spite. Suddenly, distracted by an offstage commotion, Orfeo looks around immediately. The image of Eurydice begins to fade. She sings despairingly, Losest thou me through too much love, and disappears. Orfeo attempts to follow her, but is drawn away by an unseen force. The chorus of spirits sings that Orfeo, having overcome Hades, was in turn overcome by his passions. I don't know. He was distracted. Something spooked him. Dirty pool. I don't know. I don't buy it. Who made that noise? Maybe it was, well, I'm not going to say it, Plutone, maybe? He just looked around. He said, there was a distraction, some sort of commotion. He, it wasn't that he'd purposefully turned around to look at her. He didn't really break the rule. But, as it was said, a single glance will condemn him to eternal loss. All right. Well, this act is just kind of a bummer. Anyway, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Putane is sung by Willard White, a wonderful bass baritone, American bass baritone. Proserpina is sung by Deanna Montague. Speranza, Mary Nichols. Eurydice, Julianne Baird, and Orfeo, Anthony Rolf Johnson. The conductor, John Elliott Gardner, in this 1987 recording. Here is Act Four of tonight's feature opera, Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. Here we go.
sia più vaga di celeste di letto, sì che abbandoni il maritato a letto. Quale 
And that was Act 4 of tonight's feature opera, Le Orfeo. And poor Orfeo, he looked around, he heard a noise. He was like, what's going on? And he just caught a glance of Eurydice, or as they say in this Italian opera, Erudice. And she vanishes from his sight. She, he runs to catch her, but he is transported away because he broke the rule. He was not supposed to look at her. Even a glance would rob him of her. Well, Pluto, or Plutone, obviously has jealousy for Orfeo, but to no avail, what are you going to do? You know, you make a god mad and you kind of get what you deserve or get what's coming to you, depending on what you promise to do. Plutone, sung by uh, Willard White in this recording, Prosperina, uh, Prosperpina, excuse me, Diane Montague, and um, Erudice, or Eurydice, sung by Julianne Baird and Orfeo, Anthony Rolf Johnson, John Elliott Gardner conducting. We have one more short act in this opera. But first, from Sacramento State, this is Capital Public Radio, 88.9 KXPR FM and HD Sacramento, 91.7 KXSR Groveland, Sonora, 88.7 KXJS Sutter, and 90.9 KXJZ HD2 Sacramento. This hour of At the Opera with yours truly is made possible by Joel Karish, who invites you to join him in supporting CAP Radio's commitment to opera on the air and in the community by making your contribution today. Let's wrap this opera up. In the fifth and final act of this opera, back in the fields of Thrace, Orfeo, has a long soliloquy in which he laments his loss, praising Erodice's beauty and resolves that his heart will never again be pierced by Cupid's arrow. An offstage echo repeats his final phrases. Suddenly, in a cloud, Apollo descends from the heavens and chastises him. Why dost Thou give thyself up as prey to rage and grief. He invites Orfeo to leave the world and join him in the heavens, where he will recognize Eurydice's likeness in the stars. Orfeo replies that it would be unworthy not to follow the counsel of such a wise father. So, Together they ascend. A shepherd's chorus concludes that he who sows in suffering shall reap the fruit of every grace. Before the opera ends, there is a vigorous dance at the end of this opera. So he ascends into heaven with Apollo hoping to see the likeness of his wife in the stars. Now, in the original libretto, it had a very different ending. In the 1607 libretto of this opera, Orfeo's Act V soliloquy is interrupted not by Apollo's appearance, but by a chorus 
of people associated with Bacchus, wild, drunken women, who sing of the divine fury of their master, the god Bacchus, the god of wine. The cause of their wrath is Orfeo and his renunciation of women. He will not escape their heavenly anger, and the longer he evades them, the more severe his fate will be. Orfeo leaves the scene, and his destiny is left uncertain. As the followers of Bacchus devote themselves for the rest of the opera to wild singing and dancing in praise of Bacchus. The early music authority, Claude Paliska, believes that the two endings are not compatible. Orfeo might evade the fury of the followers of Bacchus and be rescued by Apollo. However, this alternative ending, in any case, nearer to the original classic myth, where the followers of Bacchus also appear, but it is made explicit that they torture him to death, followed by a reunion as a shade or a shadow of his former self with Eurydice, with no mention of an interaction with Apollo. But I think the way that the opera ended up ending in this way is a bit less dramatic, a little more tidy, a little more hopeful. And um, yeah, I think it's just fine <laughs> the way that it ends. Let's hear the ending to this opera. Orfeo is Anthony Rolf Johnson. And um, yeah, let's just hear what happens. John Elliott Gardner, the Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloist, His Majesty's Sackbuts and Coronets, 1987 recording. Here is the fifth and final act of tonight's feature opera, Claudio Monteverdi's Le Orfeo. Sospirando il perduto mio bene, 
And there is the fifth and final act of tonight's feature opera, L'Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi. You've been listening to a recording from uh, 1987. Yes, 1987. John Elliott Gardner conducted the Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloist, His Majesty's Sackbutts and Coronets. <laughs> Orfeo's always giggle when I say that word. Orfeo was sung by Anthony Rolf Johnson. Erudice, or Eurydice, was sung by Julianne Baird. La Musica was sung by Lynn Dawson. The Messenger, Annie Sophie von Otter. Nympha, Nancy Argenta, Speranza, Mary Nichols. Caronte, the barge ferry captain. John Tomlinson. Prosperpina, Diane Montague, Plutone, or Pluto, Willard White, with a host of other wonderful singers in the chorus. And I just realized in that last act, there's a singer they didn't list on one part of the booklet, but his brief encounter with Apollo in Act 5. Apollo was sung by Nigel Robeson. My name is Sean Bianco, and this is At the Opera here on CAP Radio. Welcome to the show. If you're new to this program, please know that every Saturday night from 8 to midnight, I play an opera followed by opera potpourri with commentary. I talk about singers. I talk about the music. I talk about the arias. I talk about all kinds of stuff. And if you have something you'd like me to talk about, or you have an opera that you'd like me to play, or a singer that you'd like to hear on this program, please send me an email, sbianco66 at yahoo.com, or you can go through the website, the contact host link. Go to capradio.org slash at the opera, and on the right you'll see contact host, and you can send me an email or a message through the website, and I will get it to my inbox. All righty. Well, one of my listeners commented that he hadn't heard much music on my show from uh, William Tell. Now, I don't broadcast the whole opera itself very often because most of the time I barely, barely make it within a four-hour format. It was, it was Rossini's last opera, the longest opera he ever wrote. It's, I mean, lengthwise, it's impressive. It's right up there with the Meistersinger von Nuremberg by Wagner, as far as length is concerned. And... Um, it's quite a masterpiece. I mean, what a masterpiece to go out on and then retire, which he had a lengthy, comfortable retirement, Rossini did. We're going to hear three arias now from this opera. We're going to hear an aria from Act Two, sung by the soprano role, Matilda, sung by Morella Freni. We're then going to hear from Guillermo Tell himself, William Tell, the baritone, Cheryl Milnes, doing an aria. And then we're going to hear the doozy of an aria in Caballetta, one of the hardest arias ever written for tenor from the last act. So let's hear three selections from Giochino Rossini's William Tell with three great singers, Italian soprano Morella Freni, American baritone Cheryl Milnes, and Italian, Italian tenor Luciana Pavarotti. This is Opera Potpourri. Enjoy.
So if you ever had any doubt that Luciano Pavarotti in his prime didn't have a good high C, uh, there you go. My goodness. There are like 11 high Cs in that piece. Uh, from the last act of William Tell by Giochino Rossini, Italian tenor, Luciano Pavarotti, doing a, the big aria in Caballetta from that opera. Before that, Cheryl Milnes, an act three aria. And before that, Morella Freni, the great Italian soprano who grew up with Pavarotti in the same town, Modena, Italy, 
and uh, they used to run around together and wreak operatic havoc on the neighbors. So anyway, that's by request. One of my listeners wanted to hear um, some music from William Tell. Beverly Sills. Love Beverly Sills. She's gone, but we love her. Um, 1979, she put out a recording, uh, Verdi Arias. Here's the voice of American soprano Beverly Sills singing some Verdi for us as part of Opera Potpourri. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Thank you. 
goodness, Beverly Sills. Wow. You know, I haven't had a good Beverly fix in a long time, and there you have it. She was such an amazing singer back in the day. My goodness, I can't believe people got to sit in the Metropolitan Opera House. And also, don't leave out the New York City Opera, where she kind of got her start and kept that place going for years. Hearing that voice in the hall, what a voice. Beverly Sills, the grand dame of opera. She was such a down-to-earth person. There was her estrano, Ar forse lui folia folia sempre libera, from Verdi's La Traviata. Before that was Carinome from Rigoletto. And before that we heard Ernani in Volami, in Sorta e la Norte, the, the uh, aria before. And to begin that, Verdi's Sicilian Vespers, Bolero, the voice of Beverly Sills. My goodness. I have just enough time to fit this in. I have an excerpt. This was by request. Somebody wanted to hear the finale to the last act of Verdi's Il Travatore with the following singers. Maria Callas, Rolando Penarai, Fedora Barbieri, Giuseppe Di Stefano, with Herbert von Karajan. And I happen to be holding that recording in my hand. What are the chances? Let's see if I have time to fit it in. More potpourri. Here we go.
From Sacramento State, this is Capital Public Radio, 88.9 KXPR-FM in HD Sacramento, 91.7 KXSR Groveland, Sonora, 88.7 KXJS Sutter, and 90.9 KXJZ HD2 Sacramento. The 11, the 10 o'clock hour of At the Opera with yours truly was made possible by Joel Karish, who invites you to join him in supporting Cap Radio's commitment to opera on the air and in the community by making your contribution today and this hour, the 11 o'clock hour, of At the Opera with yours truly was made possible by Joyce Ratner, who also invites you to join her in supporting our commitment to opera on the air and in the community by making your contribution today here at Cap Radio. And now back to some more music. Oh, 
the death of almost everybody on stage, that was the end of the last act, the finale to Verdi's Il Trovatore. We just heard Maria Callas, Rolando Penarai, Fedora Barbieri, Giuseppe Di Stefano, Herbert von Karajan conducts. I'm out of time, way out of time. See you next week, Verdi, Simone Bocanegra, and next week's opera at the Met, the Gar- Dialogue of the Carmelites. Hope everyone enjoyed the opera potpourri, the Beverly Sills, and of course, the feature opera tonight, The Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi. I squeezed a lot of opera into the show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it and love hearing those voices on the Il Trovatore recording from uh, 1957. Like I always say, don't work so hard, don't drive so fast, and as always, keep opera in your heart. I'll be back next week with Simon Bocanegra, with Piero Capocilli, Morella Freni, and Jose Carreras. Have a great week. Honey, put the kettle on. I'm going home, pushing this show right to the edge of out of time. All right, folks, I'll see you next week. Take care and good night.